This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Morning. It's two minutes past nine. You are tuned to 102.7 3RRR. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. Good morning. My name's Bron Burton. And I'm Angeline Charles. How are you, Angeline? I'm good. We've got a bit of an announcement to make, don't we? We do. It's my last show today. Yes. (laughs) I'm finishing up. I'm going out into the deep blue. Yeah. Yeah. I feel very sad about it too. Anyway, life must go on. We'll try and make it a good one for you. Excellent. Hey, thank you, Tim. Bye, Tim. He sneaks out of the door. <laughs> Can you hear the creaking? <laughs> Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you very much, Kent, who's panelling for us today. The dream um, team. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Hey, today's program. We're hoping we've got a big one for you. I haven't been able to contact either of our guests. I've tried both of them in the last 10 minutes and like, I'm not having a lot of success. So we might just have a bit of a chat, Angeline, about, you know, life, the universe and everything. No, we'll continue to keep pushing on. Um, I'm very hopeful just after 10 past nine, we're actually going to attempt to cross to New Orleans of all oh, places fantastic. to speak with and it's actually got nothing to do with um, New Orleans or even the States at all Chris Turney who is a professor of climate science at the University of New South Wales um, has just written a book called Shackled and I don't know if you remember a few years ago Angeline the story it was pretty much this time almost to the day 
in fact, they were involved in this four years ago to the day, where there was a, an expedition down to Antarctica and their um, vessel got stuck. I do remember, do remember this. this. I do. I followed it because I couldn't believe um, how amazing the journey was, and and to think that in modern day times how they might have struggled with it, but how um, Shackleton dealt with it. That's you know, right. Almost years ago, that would would have been horrendous. So um, Chris has written this amazing big book called Shackled: uh, How a Scientific Expedition to Antarctica Became a Fight for Survival, and it's it's a fantastic read. It. it pretty much documents their journey um, from New Zealand down to Antarctica, what happened when their ship got stuck in the sea ice, Um, but also with reflections backwards and forwards to other expeditions. As you mentioned, Shackleton, Mawson, so many explorers who went down there without the benefit of um, sat-nav, GPS, modern technology. Warm clothing. Yeah, warm clothing, food. (laughs) Food, all sorts of things. Basic essentials and just, you know, horrific experiences, but I guess in that moment himself actually you know all of a sudden became very real in a different context different age probably with the security that one way or another they were going to get out that's right um, good old epurb yeah <laughs> but actually being able to reflect back on that anyway it's a great read and um i'm hopeful if we can't cross to chris we um we're not really sure that the, the phone line he's provided is actually going to work but we'll give it a crack and if it doesn't work we'll catch up with chris next year and i can do a little review of the book because it's pretty amazing excellent mm. um we are also angeline you've got some news in I do. I've got lots of news. So Brilliant. Yeah, lots of things to say. Great. And uh, then we're going to cross to New South Wales uh, to speak with John Frank. John is world-class cinematographer. He's done some amazing work in his life uh, shooting the oceans all around the world, but working with all sorts of um, artistic uh, with artistic endeavours as well. So he's done some work with Richard Tognetti. Um, he's shot this incredible piece of, with um, uh, Stephanie Gilmore. And uh, he's just put out a book um, basically covering 25 years of his life as an wow. ocean cinematographer. It must be amazing. Uh, it is. It's, um, I haven't seen the hard copy of it. I've had a look at what I could online and it's called Broken. It's absolutely spectacular. So looking forward to crossing to New South Wales this time to speak with John. Hopefully Excellent. he's not out surfing. <clears throat> of course. No, he wouldn't be. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's our program. So, Sounds good. And all, and all your news. <clears throat> and all my news. Look, I thought I'd start out with a story that um, I really, really like. Uh, this is this is sort of based on, on uh, my recent journey to Scotland, right. the United Kingdom. Uh, when I went to the supermarket and bought some cotton buds, doesn't that sound banal? But they've got paper stems okay. instead of plastic, plastic ones. Right. And apparently they've had, um, what I didn't realise at the time when I bought them, they've had this major campaign over there since 2013 to remove plastic stems and have paper stems so that there is less waste going out into the environment, particularly into the oceans. Apparently they have... <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> apparently the British like to flush cotton buds down the toilet. Right. And they end up in the ocean. <laughs> So, which is not good when they're which isn't plastic. good when they're plastic. Mm. So they had this amazing campaign uh, that was um, that started out with FIDRA, who's a, a Scottish environmentalist organisation, and then a whole lot of other organisation organisations got on board, and it um, they actually achieved that 
um, goal in 2016 at the, at the end. And then earlier this year, uh, all the supermarkets phased out um, plastic stems on cotton buds so they no longer have them. And I think this is something that should start in Australia. Uh, so I've still, I've still got the packet that I bought as proof that someone else really does do it. Because uh, I think that would be a great thing. Because we did actually have an incident earlier this year in Warrnambool where cotton bud stems were found on the on the beaches in a in a large uh, volume so you know i'm going to i'm going to write into to the supermarket that i go to and um ask them to stop stocking them in fact i i for some strange reason they'd sent me some survey last night and i managed to weave that in there so <laughs> you could um you could send your letter to um a number of different supermarkets and, and you could. See, see which one yep. is going to take and, up the challenge and first. And people who um, actually make the products too. Yes. So I'm going to link that amazing campaign on our Facebook page and encourage you to um, start something grassroots with me about where you can write in and change, um, try and reduce the amount of plastic that we have. The other amazing thing that they're... Just, just quickly, the other amazing thing that they're hoping to have in Britain is plastic-free aisles where you go down that aisle and there are no products wrapped in plastic. How cool is that? That's very cool. That is. Maybe and that's something else we can ask for. I like that idea. And so are they going to mix up all their products? How would they do that? So, Well, I guess it'd be like the, the aisle I look at, the gluten-free aisle, where you, know, yeah, right. you go there and there's a selection of your products. So there'd be an aisle with a selection of those products that where there is no plastics involved. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds, sounds really great. That Love to good. see that happen. Brilliant. We're going to keep your news items for a minute. Oh, for a minute, yeah, next one. Uh, I've got the weather. I thought we might do the weather. And um, then I'm going to try and get uh, Chris Turney on the line. Uh, today's forecast, it's going to be 25 degrees today, um, partly cloudy. Patchy fog in early morning, light winds becoming south to southwesterly 15 to 25 kilometres an hour in the early afternoon. So, yeah, 25 today. It's going to be pretty nice. Tomorrow, 24, partly cloudy, patchy fog in the early morning, light winds becoming southerly, 15 to 25 again. Tuesday, oh, nice on Tuesday, 29, cloud clearing, and then boom, up to 36 degrees on Wednesday. We're back into summer again. Excellent. But only for one day. <laughs> oh Melbourne, you just don't let us down. <laughs> Thursday, twenty nine. It's not exactly back down to seventeen, but twenty nine. Shower or two. Friday, twenty five. Partly cloudy, and then Saturday, twenty nine. So, yeah, wow, it's a real bell curve this week. Twenty four, twenty nine, thirty six, twenty nine, twenty five. Excellent. You can't get much more bell curvish than that, can you? Uh, the tides, Point Lonsdale. We are heading for a low tide at 11.24 and then a high tide at 5.45 this evening. Hey, it's 9.16 and um, oh, without doing too much crystal ball gazing, we were kind of right. We haven't been able to get onto Chris Turney. So I'm going to do a super quick book review of Shackled because we won't have an opportunity to speak with him um, before the end of the year. And I highly recommend this book as a potential gift for someone in this gift-giving season. It would a great gift. It would. So um, I'll just do a, a super quick summary of what it's all about. So I mentioned at the start of the program, um, 2013. It's actually a century after um, Sir Douglas Mawson uh, had his own pioneering scientific expedition across Antarctica and uh, an absolutely um, eventful and somewhat disastrous uh, journey involving um, deaths. Um, they had to eat their dogs. The do- they had to feed their dogs to other dogs. They ended yep. up with a horrible liver poisoning. They just missed out on getting rescued and had to spend uh, an entire 
entire year on Antarctica waiting for another vessel to come and pick them up. So absolutely extraordinary. Um, so this was not exactly a, a replica of that, but it was 100 years later. And uh, so Chris was the leader of a scientific expedition, but it also involved a whole lot of tourists, including one Senator Janice Rice, Janet Rice. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So... Um, Anyway, they went down there and uh, got caught in some uh, some sea ice and they were stranded. Did they go in the same type of boat with, with limited equipment? Did they try and really replicate no. those conditions? No. Okay, <laughs> I just... So, it, yeah, no, no. It was, um, it was a Finnish-built Russian vessel called... Now, this is where I'm going to get my... I knew I was going to struggle with the pronunciation of this. The Academic uh, Shikalski. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, went down there uh, and had a whole lot of climate science work that they had planned. But, yeah, they got stuck. And without – I mean, obviously, the, the um, they, they got rescued in the end, but a couple of failed rescued attempts in order to, to try and get them. But Chris took his partner and their two children down there as well. On the journey? On the journey. Wow. And they got stuck there. It was uh, just before Christmas. And, of course, with worldwide attention gathering, there's a vessel stuck down in Antarctica. Um, they ended up having a live cross to Times Square on New Year's Eve. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Which is pretty cool. As these New Year's Eve live crosses, you know, what's, what everyone else doing in the world on New Year's Eve? Oh, well, here's a vessel stuck down in the sea ice in Antarctica. So it's pretty cool. Um, it's it's a really interesting reflection from his part as a journey leader, looking back to what um, Shackleton had to face and what Mawson had to face, and even right down to the, the the basics of trying to you know keep the spirits up, keep people being positive and optimistic, and you know not letting the panic set in too much. Um, and people wanted to get home to their families as well, particularly, you know, the tourists who weren't down there with any scientific purposes. They were just going down there and checking yeah. it out and they ended up getting stuck down there too. So there you go. So it's called Shackled. Uh, how a Scientific Expedition to Antarctica Became a Fight for Survival. Uh, Chris Turney is the author. It's published by Viking. Uh, recommended retail price, $35. and All published by Penguin, Random House Australia. So I've seen it around. You can go pick it up anywhere. But yeah, it's a good read. Yeah, good read. Sounds like a very good read. Hmm. Let's do some more news, Angeline. Well, you know Boy and Slat from uh, The Ocean Cleanup? Yes. That we've talked about many times. That's uh, a story about a young man who started a project to clean up uh, the a garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean. I think we've tipped him as a future Nobel Prize winner. We have. I think we did that some years ago. We did. And this news, I think, is, is really cementing that. But uh, the Dutch magazine Elsevier, I think that's how it's said, uh, weekly, has crowned Boyan Dutchman of the Year. Excellent. Which is sort of like the equivalent of being uh, Time magazine, uh, the Dutch equivalent of Time magazine Man of the Year. So that's a pretty amazing... Um, Recognition to be given, uh, and his project, in fact, which I, which you know, he started at at uh, he was about sixteen. It was in two thousand eleven when he was sixteen that he came across more plastic in the ocean while diving in Greece, and decided that he um, came up with an idea of this system to uh, clean up the oceans using the circulating currents to bring the ocean to the bring the rubbish to the setup that he's he's designed, and that of course has has, has over time raised uh, thirty one point five million US dollars to in donations um, to get this project going, and he's still on track to to do this next year, and he's actually even shortened his time. He believes that uh, most half of the garbage patch will be uh, gone within five years at minimal cost if this project goes to plan. So. 
He's done a lot of trials and there's been a lot of effort. And I think there's, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think there's about 60 people, 60 scientists working on this. It's really well resourced. Um, and, you know, set to go ahead and perhaps change. That doesn't mean, of course, we can keep putting more litter into the ocean. Uh, that, you know, it would go a long way in trying to fix the problems that we've already created. It's absolutely inspirational to have someone like Boyan come along and we get to the point where we, you know, start to lose some of our, our global heroes and then to see someone like Boyan suddenly emerge and you think, okay, we've got some good ones coming through. It's true. do you think? I do. And like the, the young boys that we had in here a few weeks yes. ago, uh, like a role model for them to see about how the power of an individual and what they can do. That's right. It's so important to have role models like that for kids as it well. Is. Yep. Beyond the sporting and for grown ups too. Shames us all. Musicians and actors and they of course all have their place, but it's just wonderful to, to have someone like Boyan. And he's so young. He is. His whole research and um, his whole well, enterprising life, I suppose, is ahead of him. So yeah, it's brilliant. It is. It's a great story. Good stuff. Got another one? I do have another one. Um, look just I guess it's it's a bit of a litter theme. To me I think um, Plastics in the ocean is is one of our major challenges coming up alongside climate change, of course. And this is something that even when I read this article, I'd never thought about this. But do you know that glitter is a microplastic? And in fact, when it works its way in the environment, you know how when people um, wear glitter, how it's suddenly on you as well and everything else. And if your kids get glitter out at home, it, it just permeates around the house for weeks and weeks and weeks. So glitter is, in fact, um, really quite devastating to the marine environment. Um, and it, it, of course, gets in there. It's very difficult for us to clean out and probably will just stay there until it, it breaks down. But it also, if smaller um, marine organisms eat it, which are eaten by larger ones, it gets into the food chain, of mm. course, ends up with us. And the real risk about litter in, and plastics in the ocean is the impact, not just on the animals, of course, not, not thinking that you have to be human to only be the ones to be concerned about, but how this is impacting on marine animals and ultimately us because we eat them. Mm. Uh, so, you know, this is this is uh, glitter, I guess, is one of those other ways that you don't think about it. You know, sometimes it's in soap and um, we glittery body lotions and things. It's not stop not think about it. Yeah, not but just clothes and the obvious the obvious toys and things, but it's actually really quite widespread into our consumerism. So that's another campaign actually coming up and that's about... Um, changing changing what our use of glitter but probably not just to say don't use it anymore well don't use the stuff that's not biodegradable but there is actually biodegradable glitter that you can get mm. that will biodegrade and, and not have such an impact so the, the story that I've that I've picked out to read um, which was off the ABC website with which is I love that their final line is we're going to reinvent partying <laughs> <laughs> That's good to see. Yeah. So not saying, you know, saying we don't want to be the fun police. We don't want to say don't. We can't ever have glitter again, but let's let's move over to a biodegradable glitter and, and um, help protect our oceans further. I was very disheartened <laughs> yesterday driving up um, Glen Huntley Road. Uh, they, had, they had a big family fun day organised and the whole of Glen Huntley Road from down Nepean Highway all the way up to um, Orong Road was just lined with helium balloons and it was all the whole, you know, of course, the celebration of this time of the year, but I just was so incredibly disappointed that that this was something that, um, that a local government had um, sanctioned 
but obviously we're, we're quite happy to run with. So I thought the message is not getting through. No, it's not. And I guess it's hard sometimes to see, understand the impacts of those actions or just be unaware of it. And I think balloons is something that's just um, really screaming out for somebody to invent an alternative. Yep. Uh, whether it's cornstarch or something that um, we could use instead and it wouldn't have the same impact. That's right. And, look, they were quite tightly tied to the to the fence posts and the bollards and it didn't look like any of them were necessarily getting away, but it only takes one child to come and say, quick, can I have a balloon? And they let it go and off it goes. Yep. There's alternatives too. And um, Anyway, we won't get too far into the helium balloon debate, but um, for, for a public event like that, I thought, oh, surely we can move beyond the helium balloons lining the streets at this point. It's hard because they look spectacular and, of course, the kids get excited, <laughs> but, you know. I can, I can see a phone call for you next week, Rob. <laughs> yeah. um, I've got a, a sad uh, news, but it's actually it's, it's a really important one and something that we need to acknowledge. This was um, a report that came out during the week um, and it was a press conference that happened at Life Saving Victoria's Port Melbourne headquarters. So um, it's a report that's been done into drowning rates and statistics and some quite sobering um, figures here about uh, drownings that have uh, increased over the last 12 months. So 20% increase in drowning deaths in Victoria in 2016-2017. Um, so 45 people lost their lives to drowning in Victoria during that period. Um, so 2016, 2017, and uh, that was a 20% increase on the teeny average. So 78% of those people were male and 12% female. But um, also uh, a big concern, a 6% increase in drowning rates for children aged 0 to 4, 25% increase for young adults aged 15 to 24, 18% increase for adults aged 25 to 44, and 45% increase in adult in, in drowning in adults for age 65 and over. Wow. So it's it's concerning, isn't it? The, it the is education concerning. is is uh, increasing and you like to think the message is getting through but um I think it is necessarily. but we might we might also need to reflect on our changing demographics too. Um that whether it's it's associated with with more people coming to Australia that haven't haven't um, listened to those mes- messages that we've grown up with um, all of our lives, or they've come from a country where they haven't had the ocean uh, or swimming, and and aren't as skilled. It's interesting. Uh, the majority, um, and this is a change from the last two years as well. The majority of drowning deaths occurred in inland waterways, and which is a forty eight percent increase in that, also compared to the ten year average. Uh, but there was quite a large uh, figure. I'm trying to look through the report now. It was something like 70% of the drownings, people who drowned, were not wearing life jackets and a lot of them were boat-related. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. I think also something, another interesting fact about drownings is people that don't die but um, sustain uh, life-changing injuries yep. uh, from drowning, near drownings. Yep. yep, they're referred to as non-fatal drownings. Correct. Um, and those numbers have gone up as well. So there we go, 74% of boating drowning incidents, the person was not wearing a life jacket. If you're going out on a boat, even if it feels completely ridiculous and unnecessary, put on a life jacket. Correct. There you go. Normally at this time of the program we have a little community update on what's been going on, but Terry's out there 
teaching diving and Dr Surf's, I think, out there surfing. He was on last week. So instead, I'm just going to do a little report of um, really exciting initiative uh, from Port Phillip Council um, that actually happened yesterday. They've launched a beach wheelchair program. So keeping in line with what the Disabled Surfers Association uh, have set up sort of at various points, um, uh, more ocean, I suppose, surf-related. And other councils have done this as well, but Port Phillip have done it too. So these are um, what can occur during the life-saving patrol season. Floating wheelchairs allow people with disabilities to enjoy a dip at the beach. Isn't that fantastic? For the first time. There's an article actually in today's Sunday Age on page... Oh, I can't... Oh, there's no page numbers. I think five. it's page five. Oh, thanks. Just at the better top, eyes than me. <laughs> Just at the top in that really big font that I couldn't quite see. <laughs> So it's really terrific. Um, they've got uh, a picture of, of a woman in one of these floating beach chairs being assisted by um, a surf life-saving Victoria volunteer. And, uh, and yeah, good on you guys. Fantastic. It's a great initiative, isn't it? Yep. Last um, summer by the sea, I helped out uh, at Ricketts Point on one of the Disabled uh, Divers Association activities, taking people with disability snorkelling at, at Ricketts Point, and they just loved it. You know, they just had such a wonderful time. It's just awesome. They do make a point in the article, and this is a really good um, point too, the only concern we have is that the public might not understand the reason for the matting. We don't want to see the wheelchair access being blocked by prams or bags. And I thought, yeah, <laughs> good point. That's a good point. People may not understand what it's there for. So uh, anyway, there you go. Now, John Frank is one of the most well-known water cinematographers in the world. With only over 20 years' experience, John has collaborated with a wide range of artists, including Richard Tonietti on the reef, amongst other projects, but also with world champion Stephanie Gilmore to make the award-winning The Tempest, and most recently working with Jane Campion as water specialist in Top of the Lake to China Girl. Celebrating 25 years of work, John Frank has just released Broken Volume 1. It's a photo book chronicling 25 years of ocean photography and celebrating his incredible career. It's with great pleasure now we cross two new South Wales to speak with John Frank. Good morning, John. Good morning, Brian. I should have oh pretty good. How are you? I'm good. Hey, I meant to ask you whereabouts in New South Wales you are. Uh, a little uh, out of the way nook called Kangaroo Valley. So Sydney siders might know it. it's about two hours south of Sydney, just inland a little bit. Angeline's very excited, you know I've that been place. there. <laughs> I know that place. It's beautiful. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is, yeah. It's uh it's the stunning, stunning part of New South Wales. Hey, John, it's fa- it's fantastic to finally speak with you. Um, I've seen your work over so many years. And before we get into Broken Volume 1, I just wanted to ask you where this all began for you. What what led you into ocean photography or cinema- cinematography as well? Yeah, I started off actually uh, with photography and the, the video and film work came later. It was a bit of a transition really, but uh, I'm... I guess I trained as a still photographer first. And, I mean, like a lot of people in Australia, I grew up on the beach, or, or close to it anyway, not not right on the beach, but, you know, within reach. And it was just a thing that growing up in the suburbs of Sydney, down in Cronulla there, we um, everyone just gravitated towards the surf. And I had friends who were surfing, and it just, for me, it was a really natural thing was to get in, get in the water and... Uh, start surfing. So the photography came came quite a bit later. But I was a surfer first. 
Yeah, we were um, speaking with Phil Jarrett only two weeks ago and he's written in his book too about his early days learning to surf off Cronulla. I was going to ask you about that. What's, what can you tell us about what's so special and influential about that part of the world for surfers? Maybe you know, has it changed over the years? What, what is it about Cronulla? Well, Cronulla's just, it's a little, it's kind of the end of the road really as far as, it's about as far south as you can go in Sydney and then you hit a river and then it's all national park. So it's basically the train line ends at Cronulla and, and it's sort of everything funnels into that beach there and it's, it's a wide sort of stretch of sand and there's reefs and points at, at either end and it works on all different conditions. And I mean, there's a thousand beaches that, that sort of are like that all up and down the coast but, you know... For me, it was it was Cronulla that was the one, but it could have been. I mean, every little beach has its own history and its own story. And Australia, you know, I guess our culture, white Australia anyway, is, is sort of the beach and the surf and the ocean has become just such an integral part of, of how we identify ourselves. And uh, it's what you see on the postcards and all the tourists go to Bondi and... Australia's a big place, but we all somehow end up at the beach. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, uh, it's come through so many different art forms as well, and we've been watching uh, the the development and the evolution of artistic circles with surf and ocean photography, but also music and art. Um, you know, in the 20 years we've been doing this program, actually we've been doing about the, almost as long as, as you've been doing what you do. And there seems to be this six degrees of separation that's developed in that art meets surf world. There's obviously yourself, there's Richard Tonietti, um, Mick Sowery, who's, who's a long-time friend of our program, um, Tim Winton, who we've had in a few times, and we can extend that to Jane Campion as well. I wanted to ask you about Richard in particular. How did you find working with him and, and that sort of really unique experience of bringing classical music and ocean cinematography together? Well, for me, working with Richard has been... It was... It's what I look back on now if I think about 25 years of, of doing what I'm doing. and It's been the most freedom and the most sort of inspirational part of, of anything I've done before really. He, he's just an incredible artist and he's a, a hardcore surfer which is hard to believe when you see him on stage because he's obviously an incredible musician but he's, he actually I don't know if you've spoken to him about where he grew up in Wollongong. It's a pretty tough surf town and he's a good surfer so he was sort of bridging the two worlds of, of culture and, and high art at, at basically at its pinnacle tradition, classical music going back hundreds of years and being a really intelligent, sensitive guy, but also fighting for a spot in the lineup out at a place off Wollongong where localism is pretty rife. And, and back in, in the 80s, you know, the surf was a pretty... It was a pretty rough place. People were getting... You know, it, you get sorted out if you don't follow the rules and there was... You know, there's, there's a undercurrent of kind of I, I guess it's a implied violence really when you're out in that world if you don't follow the rules then you get sorted out not just by the ocean but by the people the the other surfers that are out there so mm. it's a pretty interesting place to grow up and I guess lineups like that are still like that really they get regulated by the people that are out there and 
don't know. It's, it's pretty interesting when you think about it. It's interesting. It's like the Wild West, in a way. Yeah. It's interesting you, you talk about if you don't follow the rules, you get sorted out. Because I, um, I, I, you know, to some degree, that would have to follow not necessarily with the people, but just the technique and the the level of skill that's required with the sort of music that he plays. That if you if you don't follow the rules, if you're not incredibly disciplined, you're not going to be able to cut it um, with with what you do. So I wonder if there's that sort of toughness that gets. Um, that that gets developed and instilled both as that sort of very you mentioned high art that very very top end of classical music um, uh, performance, but then sort of then it sort of seems to translate out there in the surf as well. Yeah, well, and as you say, I mean, classical musicians are incredibly disciplined. Richard still practices for hours every day, mm. and. I've been, spent weeks with him up in the desert, Western Australia, or down in um, little islands off Bass Strait, and, and basically being on surf trips. But he'll always make time for for practicing. Um, he's an incredibly driven, disciplined person. He's also actually incredibly courageous. He takes huge risks with programming for the ACO, and I think that's the combination that makes him unique it's just that he and maybe it comes from surfing when you're out in the surf you take risks it's all it's all a calculated kind of gamble Mm. in the water so he really does put his it's basically he puts himself on the line when he's on stage with a lot of these concerts and it's not a boring kind of the aco are not a boring orchestra they're not you know they're not just trundling out the latest you know what, what people want to hear. If, if he does Vivaldi or Beethoven, you, you know you're going to get something that you know about something, you take it to the next level. Oh, absolutely. They're incredible to watch. Um, I had the you know, great pleasure of seeing them perform um, The Reef here in Melbourne uh, and uh, watch Musica Servica, you know, many times and, and seen what they do. It's really extraordinary. Um, wanted to ask you also, you've been working recently with Simon Baker on, on the soon-to-be-released uh, cinematic adaptation of Tim Winton's Breath. How, how did you go about approaching that work, with working with Simon? Well, this was Simon's directorial debut, so he was putting himself out there too. And from speaking with him initially about it, he just fell in love with, with Tim's book because any of the listeners that have read Breath that Surf, it's probably the closest literary work that's, that I can think of that actually accurately depicts what it's like to be a surfer. Mm. And the obsessions that some surfers sort of develop over the years and how it can sort of ruin your life in some ways because you it takes priority over everything else and it can be a real balancing act for, for certain personalities. And Tim got all that in that book. And then Simon, I think, really identified with that. And he's kind of like Richard in a way that he's also a really very capable surfer himself. And so he just really got it. So it was fun for me to work on that film. I was um, a camera operator shooting, not the surfing, which was kind of unusual for me because normally on projects I'm in the water shooting the the surf action or in the water kind of shots, but I didn't even get in the water Ah. uh, on that film. They had uh, another guy, Rick Rafici from Western Australia, shoot all those sequences and he did a terrific job. So I was shooting the drama... Uh, with 
the DOP working for him, yep. trying to realise um, he's from Melbourne, Martin Dean. He's an amazing uh, director of photography, and I, I guess I was just kind of winging it a bit because I'd never shot a feature before. There's a lot of people waiting um, with great anticipation for this to come out and um, Breath is an extraordinary book, as you mentioned, and I know a lot of our listeners have identified with it and we had Tim in the studio not long after it came out, actually, and um, I remember asking him at the time whether it was going to be made into a feature film. I know that's been asked about a lot of his work, um, Dirt Music, I know in particular, uh, there was some plans to, to get that going and they seem to have stalled. But, yeah, a lot of people very excited about Breath coming out. Was um, was Tim involved in how this was going to be represented on screen or was it left sort of pretty much entirely to Simon to work it through? Well, Tim came to the set one day and had a look, but... No, I think he stepped back and he trusts people to, you know, follow through with their own creativity. So Simon co-wrote this, this screenplay um, with a very well-known screenwriter and um, Tim wasn't really involved in that as far as I know. So, no, I think he kind of... He's not... I don't reckon Tim Wynn is the type of person that tries to micromanage things. I think he... he you know, it's experienced enough and oh yeah, for sure. Just let people <laughs> do their thing. Yeah, yeah. So that's oh, it's going to be great when it comes out. And the surfing in the film is really, it's really something. It's uh, you know, I said about when you're reading literature and, and if they're surfing in it, often it doesn't really convey to to real surface. Well, the same thing could be said for film, mm. and uh, I think this this is uh, one of the best examples I've ever seen of. of uh, a dramatic feature that has surfing. There's a big part of the story that doesn't... Simon was very restrained. It doesn't go over the top. It's, there's no CGI or... Mm. It's all very... It's all very believable and, and really part of the story. Yeah, the trailer looks amazing, so really looking forward to it. Now, I want to move on to talk about Broken Volume 1. Um, 25 years, your portfolio must be huge. How did you go about piecing it all together? Oh, well, <laughs> editing... It is really difficult for anybody uh, and I guess that's why I called it Volume 1 because, I don't know, there's just so much that you can throw at something. I tried to be pretty restrained and it's not a massive sort of retrospective volume. It's quite a small book and it's intimate. I wanted uh, the reader to hold it in their hands and there's quite a bit of text in there from stuff I've written over the years that'll vignettes of uh, little stories and kind of like extended captions sometimes. Yeah, I love the bit. Um, when they're flipping through the book, yeah. I was having having a look at online and saw that your you, there's a comment about your first ever gig being painters and dockers at a blue light disco. Yeah, that was at the Sutherland uh, Entertainment Centre. So that's where the kids used to go. Yeah, right. Back in the 80s. That was, I think it was Lime Spiders and Painters and Dockers. Or, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Fantastic. That was Sydney in the 1980s, wasn't it? Do you you think those early musical tastes shaped your photography or was it just sort of part of growing up, do you think? Oh, I mean, yeah, who knows? I I think (laughs) probably I listen to all different types of music and always have, so I don't have one particular style. I, I wouldn't be, to be honest, I'm not, you know, putting painters and dockers in the CD player these days. But, <laughs> uh, 
inspiration for me. I, I used to read a lot of books, and it, it's all really related. I think music, mm. photography, very closely related. Um, literature, that everything kind of crosses over. And I think some people seem to be more visually literate or more literate musically or whatever, but it's kind of all the same sort of feelings that you get in your channel into whatever's kind of working for you or whatever direction you somehow get pushed into. Mm. As a kid, I mean, you're not... It, a lot of it's just kind of... It's a pretty natural progression on how you end up somewhere. If you look back on your life, you kind of think, well, how did I even get here? There were no big decisions that I made. It just sort of... Life just takes you where it does. Yeah, that's right. Uh, John, it's Angeline. Can I just ask you about the title of the book what made you choose that choose broken well a few of my mates who think they're funny is calling it a description of my state of mind but um, <laughs> there may be a little bit of truth to that <laughs> no it's just simply I wanted a title that just wasn't as obvious as, as the ones that were coming into my head and I mean, we all know that waves break. Mm. So that was just a little play on words there that I thought, well, you know, it gives it a little bit of mystery. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with it. I still think it's it's working. Oh, it looks amazing. Um, haven't seen a hard copy yet, but what I've seen on the website is incredible. You've got photography covering um, Indian Ocean, Indonesia, Hawaii, the Pacific Ocean, um, coast of Ireland, obviously here in Australia. Have you got a place, John, where you haven't been yet where, or somewhere where you want to keep going back? Um, there's, I've been fortunate enough with work to travel to a lot of places. Um mostly due to the nature of the work, places where the coastline and, and surfing. So there's a ton of spots I, I really want to explore. And it's funny, I'm actually thinking about going away in January for a few weeks and talking with my wife about where we, we might be able to get away to and we, we just can't seem to put our finger on it. But Sri Lanka's one that's on the list mm. or maybe the Philippines or... Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of the world that... I mean, you can't ever stop travelling or you never get to see everywhere, do you? So. <laughs> no, that's right. There's always somewhere There's always else to go. <laughs> places to go. It's just finding the time. Yeah. Uh, and you've got a, a special offer too with your book, um, some uh, incredible A2 prints. Do you want a good opportunity to give this a bit of a plug? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I do get um, a few inquiries about selling prints of my work because... Uh, you know, they look they look good when they're printed and, uh, on the wall. So if people buy the book, I'm going to... I sort of thought, well, normally for 500 bucks you get an A2 print, but if you buy the book, you can get one for 250 So you don't have to do it at the same time. You can just have a look through the book, and if something kind of grabs your eye and you think you might want to print of it, then it's, it's a pretty affordable way, and I'll be printing those myself and taking all good care to make sure that they, they're, they're special kind of pieces. Oh, look, just what I've seen on the website's amazing. 
Um, so I'll just do, do a quick summary of it. It's Broken Volume 1 by John Frank. We're already looking forward to Volume 2. Um, Angeline's just put that up on our Facebook page too. So for our listeners, um, go and check out the Radio Marinara page on Facebook and, and you can have a look at it there. So photographs and text by John Frank, forward by Andrew Kidman, uh, afterward by um, afterward by Sean Doherty. And first edition of 1,000, numbered and signed. Um, free shipping in Australia, so that's pretty cool. And if you're listening overseas, um, as we know, some of our subscribers are it's $15 only for shipping worldwide as well good luck John it's been fantastic speaking with you and um, if you're ever in Melbourne um, drop us a line we have a um, a regular presenter on our program Dr Surf and I'm sure he'd love to catch up with you as well oh that'd be fun I'd love that thanks Brian yeah no worries we'll get Mick Sour in the studio when you're down as well Uh, Mick's an old mate of mine I love the guy we all do awesome (laughs) Cheers, thanks, John. Good luck, and um, thanks, yeah, put that put that link on our Facebook page now. Okay. Okay. See ya. Bye. Bye for now, John Frank. There, it's fantastic. It's a great book. Really yeah. beautiful pictures. Hey, we got about um, four minutes left of your last program, Angeline. For we people have. who've just rung in. Uh, rung in, tuned in. <laughs> I've got a couple of quick ones to mention. Um, last week, we didn't really mention this uh, on our program. Um, I wasn't in and I think it passed the guys by, but world record attempt uh, was made. In fact, world record was made uh, down at Rye for the largest number of scuba divers oh, underwater. That's, that's great. In at, Rye. In Rye. Um, 364, I believe, they managed to get and um, smashed the previous record, and but they've left it open to potentially, you know, break it again. So yep. congratulations uh, to everyone who took part in that. And um, I was just doing a bit of online research last night. It's not the only world record in the last um, few months. The uh, Guinness World Record oldest scuba diver. Um, so that record was broken back uh, only in September this year. 94-year-old. That's amazing. Ray Woolley is the wow. world oldest scuba diver. So it gives us all hope, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> we can dust off our gear, Bron, you yeah. and I. Yeah, <laughs> there's hope. <laughs> There's hope yet. It was his 94th birthday on Monday the 28th of August and uh, he he went for a dive to the sunken wreck of the Zenobia Ferry in La Lanaka for, in a bid for world record um, as the world's oldest scuba diver. He went to 38 metres for 41 minutes. That's a deep, deep that's, dive. That's a big dive. Yep. He said, um, this is a great quote, I love this, I only had to dive below 12 metres for 30 minutes to take the record off the last guy but I decided to do a bit more. <laughs> He's going to hold that for a long time, I Isn't think. Isn't that fantastic? Got any last ones to finish on? Oh, look, I do. I thought uh, I'd just talk about this one very briefly, about the federal government spending $2.2 million on giant ocean fans in a bid to protect the Great Barrier Reef. What? It does sound a bit crazy, doesn't it? But they're going to install these huge uh, reef mixer fans, and I will say they are solar-powered, so they're not contributing to the problem. Right. Uh, and they're going to, in areas where they've noticed where there's upwelling and so cool waters are coming up to the corals, uh, they seem to be okay in these um, hotter conditions and it's less coral bleaching, and so they're going to tr- trial these fans out in, in spots where upwelling doesn't occur, but also around... Uh, the sites that are tourist visitor sites and it does sound a bit you know how come just tourist visitor sites but there are a lot of uh, companies that rely on on taking people to the reef so maybe it's a great idea to trial this and see how they go so it will also I guess 
create um, areas where regeneration can occur mm. after coral bleaching in other areas. So interesting project and good to see how it works. Yeah, fantastic. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.